This morning, we come to Armageddon. At the pouring out of the sixth bowl of God's wrath in chapter 16, we saw three frog-like demonic spirits gathered together the kings of the world at Har Megadon, or Armageddon, for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. And now in the 19th chapter, while Armageddon isn't mentioned by name, the word appearing only once in the entire Bible, we see what appears to be the battle of Armageddon taking place. Before looking at the vision itself, however, I thought we should take note of some popular ideas about Armageddon. And to get a handle on current thinking, I went where we all go today, to the Internet. When I first looked, Yahoo noted there were over 24 million links to Armageddon. When I looked again a few minutes later, there were over 27 million. Apparently, even Yahoo has a hard time keeping up with all the ideas about Armageddon. Now, back in the 70s, Armageddon was brought to the attention of the evangelical world by Hal Lindsey. Hal took the battle literally and identified the players in the battle in keeping with then-current political events. The scenario he painted proved to be wrong, but that didn't cause interpreters to give up. It simply opened the door for more books and movies and now blogs. But with millions of ideas about Armageddon out there, it would obviously be futile to address specific speculations. But if you want a brief overview of dispensational, Jehovah's Witness, Seventh-day Adventist, Islam, and Baha'i thoughts about Armageddon and the end of the world, you can check it out yourself in Wikipedia. What I think would be beneficial, however, would be to approach Armageddon the way we have been approaching all of Revelation, by asking what relevance the visions had to John's readers. Now, again, that's not to suggest that the visions of Revelation have no bearing on us today or that they contain no future aspects only that it's imperative that we first look at them in the light of their historical context. And as you've already noted, the Christians were facing a horrific beast that was intent on destroying their allegiance to Christ. Their lives were on the line, and they were in need of encouragement to stand fast. Well, nothing could have given them more encouragement and the confidence to stand fast when confronted by the power of Rome than to see the arrival of Christ on a white horse. And that's the way this vision opens. Revelation 19, 11 through 16. 
And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat upon it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems. And he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. John's vision begins with the opening of heaven. And it's not just a door to heaven that he looks through this time. Now all of heaven is opened, and he who is called faithful and true comes riding on a white horse to wage war and to bring about judgment. Now, we have seen a rider on a white horse before in Revelation. In the sixth chapter, a conqueror rode forth on a white horse at the opening of the first seal. Now, the identification of that rider is debatable. I believe it's the conquering Christ being pictured as he comes into lives and hearts. The remainder of the seals then shows what follows the conquest of a heart by Christ in the Roman society when becoming a Christian led invariably to persecution, economic discrimination, and sometimes even martyrdom. Now, as I mentioned when we studied that, not all agree with that understanding of the first writer of the apocalypse. But all do agree that it is Christ who's being pictured here. John clearly identifies him as he who is called faithful and true, the Word of God, King of kings and Lord of lords. He's pictured as a mighty royal warrior. His eyes have the fire of judgment within them. And upon his head are many diadems, the name which no one knows except he himself probably speaks of the mystery of his nature. There is no way we can fully comprehend the nature of God incarnate, God in flesh. The robe dipped in blood is a symbol of a warrior who has been through many conflicts and may even include the warrior's own blood. And that, of course, would be appropriate for Christ because... The primary battle was fought on a cross. The armies that follow him are apparently the heavenly hosts, coming not to fight, for they're dressed in fine linen, white and clean, the same dress as the bride of Christ, but to observe the mystery and the victory of Christ over his enemies. The only weapon is in view, 
is a weapon that comes from the mouth of Christ, the sharp sword. Now, obviously, this is not a physical weapon, but a picture of power and authority. It's in his word. With his word alone, he is able to smite the nations, rule over them, and execute judgment over them. That alone seems to do away with the need for physical battles and nuclear weapons. All that's needed for spiritual warfare are spiritual weapons. Paul makes that clear in the sixth chapter of Ephesians. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And he then goes on to specifically state that the sword is the word of God. The battle of Armageddon is a spiritual battle. The weapons of Armageddon are not weapons of mass destruction, but weapons that destroy the spiritual forces of wickedness. And it's not a battle we need to worry about. For the outcome is already known. Christ has already been declared the victor, and John is given a very graphic vision to make that clear. Verses 17 and 18. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in the midheaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, in order that you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, and small and great. The great supper of God is here presented in contrast to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage supper is a festal banquet for the church. The great supper is pictured as a banquet for buzzards. Ezekiel was given a similar vision in the 39th chapter of his prophecy to picture the slaughter and destruction of the forces of Gog and Magog, which may or may not be a picture of the same battle in view here. Now, this is very graphic, even grotesque. It's a way to visualize the destruction of God's enemies. And I don't think it's necessary for us to insist that Armageddon will be a physical battle because birds of prey are pictured eating carcasses of the victims. You know, visions have to be presented in pictures that we can visualize, or they aren't visions. There'd be no way to paint a spiritual picture we could comprehend without using physical props. And that's all this scene is. It's a graphic way to present the victory of Christ over his enemies. Now, years ago, I picked up a tract. In a, that's, that says how long ago it was. We don't see tracts anymore. But I picked up a tract in a, a Bible bookstore that claimed Armageddon was just around the corner 
And as evidence, it cited the fact that there was a marked increase in the number of vultures in Israel. They were getting ready for the great supper of God. Now, that's the kind of thing you get when you force visions and symbols into a literal framework. John's vision continues with a picture of Christ's enemies assembled to make war against him and the doom of his two special enemies, 19 through 21. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat up on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized. And with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with a sword which came from the mouth of him who sat upon the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Now, if you've read any books on the end of the world and the battle of Armageddon, this is probably a little disappointing. This is a letdown here. Or maybe, hopefully, it's a great relief. Because instead of the Holocaust that is generally presented, all we see here are the forces of evil assembled to do battle but no battle. No battle. Christ simply seizes the beast from the sea and the false prophet and casts them into the lake of fire. The rest who followed after them are killed by the sword of his mouth. The authority of his word slays them. And the confrontation is over. That's it. That is Armageddon. That's the outcome of the conflict between good and evil. That would make a very short movie, wouldn't it? But that's it. That is Armageddon. That's not what we read about. That's not what we watch in movies. That's not what we fear. But that is the biblical picture of Armageddon. The forces of evil are gathered together for battle, but there is no battle. All that remains for us to determine is when does this take place. Now, at first glance, it appears that this is a picture of Christ's second coming, and no doubt it is. This indeed pictures the outcome of the final conflict between good and evil. It is not necessary, however, to limit it solely to a picture of the final conflict. Now, the Christians in John's day were facing a real beast from the sea in the Roman Empire and a beast from the land or false prophet in the pagan priesthood that enforced emperor worship. 
John wrote to encourage them in the face of such opposition and to remind them that in spite of the way things looked at the moment, Christ was in control. They were going to have to endure for a time and maybe even die for their faith, but ultimately victory would be theirs if they would remain faithful to the Lord. The beasts were not going to win. They were going to go down in defeat before the word of the Lord. And when did that defeat come? Well, they didn't have to wait for the second coming. The beasts of John's day were long ago overcome by the word of God. The empire that fought against the kingdom of God officially embraced it in just a little over 200 years. And the enemies of Christ who lived in John's day were either judged by the word of God at their death or converted by the word of God while still living. Either way, either way, the enemies of Christ they were facing were all defeated. And the same is true today. While it may at times appear that the allies of Satan have the upper hand, in reality, they don't. They're doomed to defeat. The Word of God is judging them even now. And if they don't embrace the truth and repent, they will be eternally condemned by it. That is the truth of Armageddon. Now, again, that's not to say that there's not also a future element to Armageddon. The final confrontation between good and evil, the final Armageddon will take place when Christ returns. And at that time, the last of Satan's allies and Satan himself, as we'll see next week, will be cast into the lake of fire and brimstone to be tormented day and night forever and ever. So thoughts of Armageddon shouldn't frighten you. They shouldn't frighten you. They should comfort you. And the same is true of all of Revelation. It was not written to frighten Christians, but to assure them, to comfort them. The only ones who should be frightened by the visions of Revelation are those who are in league with Satan and his allies. Or those who have simply refused to submit to the Lordship of Christ. Now, I doubt that there are any here today who have consciously chosen to be in league with Satan, who are actively striving to fulfill his goals and objectives. But there may very well be someone here today who has not surrendered to the Lordship of Christ. Someone who has not dressed themselves in the fine linen, white and clean, that prepares them for the marriage supper of the Lamb. We looked at that last week. There may be some who have not dressed themselves in the fine linen, 
white and clean that allows them to ride to victory with Christ over the forces of evil. So obviously, if you have not clothed yourself with Christ, if you have not put on Christ through immersion into Christ, the visions of Revelation should frighten you. Armageddon should frighten you. But don't let that fear paralyze you. Let it motivate you into action. Let it motivate you to surrender your all to him. And to do so while there's still time.